You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And let's turn to that passage, Psalm 50. You'll find it on page 572 of the Pew Bible. We'll read it uh, in sections as, as we go on. Uh, and when we do communion, I like to go work through the Psalms, and this is where we're at in those Psalms. It's entitled The Psalm of Asaph. It's one of the first of, it is the first of Asaph's Psalms. Uh, he is a musician who wrote 12 of these songs of the Bible, and this is the first of them. It was for a festival of covenant renewal, and it's, in that sense, it's just absolutely perfect for a communion because. That is also what we are doing. And it's a psalm that causes us to, or at least it provides a great framework for self-examination. Now, a lot of the times we say, don't do that. Don't do that. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Don't examine yourselves. But there's a biblical balance in all of these things. Just now, uh, I've noticed a, a, a huge trend in Reformed Christianity to keep stressing and talking about the grace of God, which you think, that's got to be a good thing. That's like talking about the love of God. It's got to be such a good thing, and it, and it is. But my fear is that it's spoken about in such a way that people say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I think. God is gracious, and that's enough. But actually, it's, it's, it's never enough. And what I mean by that is God's grace changes us and motivates us and, and works within us. And it is right for us to, to ask about how we are getting on. Uh, when I was incredibly young and courting uh, Annabelle, uh, I had to go to the island of Lewis. And I was a bit scared, to be quite honest, because I had heard many things about this island and it was a strong point of the church that I had just joined, the Free Church. And uh, there are many, many stories I could tell you about it. But what I absolutely loved were the, the men, to my mind, the old men who were uh, elders and who had asked these incredible questions that I never heard anyone else asking. Are you going, growing in grace? How do you know that you're growing in grace? Have you grown in grace today? You kind of dread meeting them. Uh, it wasn't these trite kind of questions. But actually, it's a really good question for you to ask. Are you growing in grace if you're a Christian? Now, if you're not a Christian and you're wondering what all this is about, stay with us and you'll see uh, what it means. For those who say, no, no, don't, stop looking at yourself. Haven't I often quoted McShane for every look at self, take ten looks at Jesus? That's true. But... You still take that look at self every now and then. Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 12. We read this. A man, when we take communion, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, uh, <coughs> sorry, this is First Corinthians, First Corinthians. Corinthians 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So there is a place for an appropriate self-examination. There is a, a place for looking and saying, where am I with the Lord? Now, like everything in the Christian life, you've got to do it in the correct balance. Don't become self-absorbed. Don't make it all about you. But you are involved in this equation between you and Jesus and his church and his world. And it won't do any of us any harm this evening just to simply ask, where do I stand before the Lord? And I include in that myself, because sometimes you can drift away from God and not even realize that is what has been happening. So let's read verses 1 to 6. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness for God himself is judge. It's a very straightforward picture. The scene is judgment day. The court is convened. God's people are called before him. God is not right now sitting and judging those who are not his people. God judges his people. And in a strange kind of way, it's a bit of a paradox because if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, there's an extent to which you are out with the judgment of God just now. There will come a day when you will stand before God and you will have to give account of every word said and every deed done. But for the Christian, we come under the judgment of God now. And we, for those of us who are Christians, we don't often like to hear that. God's people are called before him. He is the judge. He is the mighty one, God the Lord. In verse 1, that's a very interesting uh, trilogy of names used for God, a triple invocation that's used only in one other place in the Bible, in Joshua 22, 22. The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. And the story there is there was a charge against uh, two of the tribes of perceived apostasy, and the people were called to answer, and they said, no, no, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And God comes to us and is present with us this evening as the mighty one, God the Lord. He knows. You can fool me. I can fool myself. I can fool you. But I can't fool God. 
He comes and he speaks with judgment. And the, the images of this uh, fire and the great cosmic effects, the spectacular bonfire night, uh, you go when the Kirk Session will be meeting on Tuesday night. There'll be fantastic bonfire night uh, at Baxter Park and uh, where's the other one? Balgay Hill. And I mean, it's tremendous. It's wonderful. Lasts for about 20 minutes and it really is worth going to see. But the imagery here is, is, is much, much stronger. It's compared with Sinai, but I think ultimately it's compared with the judgment of God to come. And the Lord's table reminds us of the coming of Christ not only in salvation, but also in judgment. We eat and drink until he comes. And judgment begins with God's own people. 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I love in this as well that they are, the creation is called as the witness or the witnesses to God. The heavens declare God's glory and righteousness, and they do not hide human sin. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And you'll notice also that the people are those who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. This is following exactly the pattern of Exodus 24 when Moses comes down from the mountain and the book of the covenant is open and read to the people. They respond, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Then Moses takes the blood, sprinkles it on the people and says, this is the blood of the covenant that was made with you in accordance with all these words. There's a ritual of sacrifice followed by the the repetition or the recitation of the law. And the psalm, the psalmist here is reflecting upon God, that same covenant initiation, that same covenant being reflected now and on the ultimate day of judgment. Now, the point of all that is this, that to believe that God is with us, God himself is judge. Our God comes. The mighty one God, the Lord, is our God. To believe that God is with us can be an incredibly dangerous belief. Sometimes people have done things and have said things believing that God was with them when he wasn't. And it has caused a tremendous amount of harm. It can lead really to a false confidence. And I think that many of us perhaps suffer from not being confident enough and we we lack confidence in many, many things. And that can be sinful too because it can be an an utter self-absorption. But also perhaps there are some of us who are very confident about many, many things. We're confident about our relationship with God and we're confident about God this and God will that. And it's very, very dangerous. The more I go on, the, the more I find Christianity in one sense incredibly simple in that when Sinclair was teaching this morning, I was thinking, I, what do I have except the Word of God? That's it. 
that's all that I've got. That's what my confidence is in. My confidence is in Jesus. My confidence is in God. My confidence is in his word. Almost any other confidence is bound to lead to disappointment. So he deals with two kinds of, I think, wrong confidence that God's people can sometimes have when we wander away from God. Verses 7 to 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. He's not, God is not denying that he is their God. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Now God is addressing his people there who have fallen into the trap of what we will call ritual formalism. They reveled in the sacrifices. They liked the ritual. We have communion just now. And I am telling you, I have never seen anything so plagued with ritual as communion, especially in churches like the Free Church, which say we don't have ritual. I am telling you, the way that it's done in different churches, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. And if you alter anything or change anything, you know, there's got to be a white cloth and it's got to be this and it's got to be done in that order and in this way. And people like the way that it's done very often. And the, the, the ritual itself can be fine. God here has no problem with the sacrifice. But the trouble is the theology that goes along with that. Here, they thought they were enriching God. They thought that somehow they were doing God an enormous favor. They thought that God was like them. Calvin says this, we have a strong propensity by nature to form our estimate of God from ourselves and to degenerate into a carnal worship. What Calvin is saying is so true, isn't it? What, what, we think, what do we like? What do I like? Oh, I like music in this way. Oh, I like a solemnness in worship. I like this. I like that. Oh, I don't like too much humor. I like a much, lot more humor. I, I don't like this. I, I, and what we do is we create a worship which is, we, we project ourselves unto God and say, if I was God, this is what I would like. But God says, I'm not like you. The people here were, were taking around from the, the pagan theology around, if you like, because the pagans around thought that God was enriched by their sacrifices. You sacrificed a bull. Oh, that was good because God got fed as though he needed the blood of a bull. But God didn't need that and God did not depend on what they gave. True religion is never man reaching out to God and seeing God. It is always much more. God is not reproving them for their sacrifice. He is reproving them for their wrong understanding of that sacrifice. Look what they neglect. They neglect thankfulness and obedience and prayer. Sacrifice thank offerings to God, verse 14 says. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. True religion is responding to God's grace obediently, thankfully, 
prayerfully and in worship. The simplicity of outward worship is that it points to the real relationship. I don't know, I, I watched, um, I'll, con- I'll make a confession, we quite like watching Graham Norton. He's a very, very good presenter and his shows are always incredibly interesting. And I know that he's you know, a very camp Northern Irish person, uh, but that you should never hold that against him. He's, uh, I, I do enjoy um, watching his program. I find it fascinating to, as a cultural observation as well. And last night we watched him interviewing Elton John. And I thought, I was, th- I was just thinking about it a little bit, and you know, I'm probably not in any position to make any kind of judgment, except on this, that Elton John talks a lot about the two children he's adopted or taken into his family and, uh, and the amount that gets given them and everything else. And it just strikes me all the time when I listen to it, how complicated and how um, money involved it all is. You can go and you can see people who have a lot, lot less in terms of the things of this world and who have a very, very real relationship with their children. Sometimes I think in our Christian worship, we complicate things We make things much more ritualistic and much more elaborate, so much so that it may be that the real relationship is still there, but sometimes is it not in danger of getting smothered a bit? God is the one we cannot see. The real relationship is the relationship that we have with him. And that changes our attitude and our behavior to others. The ritualists were good at worship. They were good at the sacrifices. But there was always something missing. Micah 6-7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Sometimes there are Christians who say, well, we need to be doing all this mercy ministry and social justice and so on, like Chris was talking about in terms of CAP. But again, it's like the worship issue. Sometimes we get that wrong because we think, if we do this, then if I was God, I'd be pleased with someone who did this and I would want to reward them. And we do do it as a kind of work or we do it as a kind of showing off or we do it as to show how wonderful we are. But the reality is surely the other way around. That what happens is we turn to God and we worship God and as we do so in simplicity, in spirit and in truth, then God opens up our hearts, God takes away all the kind of dross that's around our lives and sets us free to love and to serve others. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? The second group, verses 16 to 21, to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. 
When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Whereas the first group are ritual formalists, really into praise and worship, the second group are creedal formalists. They say all the right things, they have all the right language and all the right doctrine. They recite it, they love it, they profess it, but they don't keep it. Their life contradicts their profession. What right do you have to recite my laws? Verse 17, you hate the word of God. Verse 18, I mean, you say you love it, but you hate it. Why? Because you break the commandments, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not speak evil of your neighbor. It's incredible how many of us can sit in a Bible study and talk about the love of God, and then when it's finished, we get up, we make a cup of tea, we're talking to someone, and yak, 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 we're hammering somebody else. We're slagging someone off. And for many of us, I honestly believe that's where we're at. We offend God by willful formalism in the church. As long as things are done properly, as long as there's a decent order as there should be, as long as the praise is just spot on and everything is fine, everything is said in the right way and the right formulas are said and the right doctrine is taught. And yet, there is willful disobedience in our lives. There is compromise in our relationships. There is corruptness in our speech. There is lovelessness at home. You speak continually against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And how are we able to do this? How are we able to take on our lips the word of God and yet behave like this? It's very simple. We're told in the psalm, you forget me. These things you've done, I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God. Again, Calvin's just so brilliant writing about this. He said, hypocrites, until they feel the hand of God against them, are ever ready to surrender themselves to a state of security, and nothing is more difficult than to awaken their appetites. What he's saying this is that if you're a hypocrite, you feel very secure. Secure in the grace of God. Secure in the love of God. There's your favorite hymn. There's that wonderful sermon that encouraged you and strengthened. And you're secure and you're secure. And yet you go out and on Monday morning, your behavior remains exactly the same. The coldness and the deadness and the, the lack of spiritual growth and the lack of spiritual warmth. It's all there, but it doesn't seem to bother you. God says, you openly violate my law, and yet you're great sticklers for my ceremonial commands. That is sometimes what happens. It is a, it's a charge. I have to look at myself in terms of, do I get comfortable with the rituals, just going along, doing the routine? Or is, as we were hearing this morning, Is God pruning me through his word? Is God feeding me through his word? Am I one of these people who loves to talk about the word of God 
and loves to say what the church should be doing and what should be happening. And yet, do I never come to the word of God myself and look into it as a mirror and realize the hypocrisy that so often characterizes my life? Ritual and recitation of the law. Do you know, I honestly believe that the church in Scotland is absolutely plagued with this. Absolutely plagued with this. And again, it's not God saying the ritual is wrong. And of course, he's not saying that his word is wrong. But he's saying in your life and in your attitude and in how you behave, you hate my instruction. And you cast my words behind you. As soon as you're out that building, you're forgetting everything that I have said to you. As soon as you close that book, you get on with the more important things of life as far as you are concerned. You think you're doing me a big favor by coming to church once, twice on a Sunday. You think you're doing me a big favor by being involved. I don't need this, says God. God doesn't need any of our stuff, any of our offerings. We're not doing God any favors by coming to... You know this, I never understood this. And to this day, I still don't understand how this happens. There are churches where... You have membership that may be a thousand members, and you go to the church on Sunday, and there's maybe a hundred people actually worshiping God. Now, are 900 sick or elderly? No, I don't think so. But when it's a communion Sunday, you'll find that people turn up. I remember once going to a church which had 50 elders, and the man told me at the door that he thought that about 30 of them would be at the service, and this was brilliant, because 10 of them were on duty and so on. And I, I, I still don't grasp and I don't understand this. If I wasn't coming to church, the last service I would come to would be a communion one. Because I'd be such a hypocrite. I'd be such a liar. But they were thinking, their whole attitude was, if I come to church and take communion, that's like me you know, ticking off the box for having been at a communion service. I get registered in the, maybe not the Lamb's Book of Life, but at least the Kirk Sessions book. I'm ticked there. And that's fine. And God says, no, no, that's not fine. That's not what it's about. It's not that God wants us to stay away from communion. But he wants us to come, but not to use it as some kind of bribery, saying, look, I've been at communion, I've been a really good person. That's not what it's about. And that's why the last two verses are so important. Verses 22 and 23. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. False confidence causes us to forget God. I will almost guarantee this. In fact, I'm certain this is the case. That if you are spiritually struggling and you are spiritually backsliding, it is because you have forgotten God. You say, no, I haven't forgotten God. I haven't forgotten God. Look, I go to worship. Look, I read the Bible. No, that's the ritual. That's the recitation of the law. But you've forgotten him. You're not thinking of him. He's not in your heart. You've you've allowed yourselves to drift and to wander because that happens, I think, almost to every Christian. Ironically, the uh, hymn that we sang by Horatius Boner, he may be one of the exceptions. He once wrote that uh, there hadn't been a single day gone by when he didn't know the conscious presence of the Lord. Well, he is a very, very blessed man because a lot of us are not like that. 
Calvin again. And sorry, I just love what Calvin says about all of this. I just have read all of his commentary to you if you could have handled it. But men are disposed to admit that God is judge, but at the same time to fabricate excuses for eva- evading his judgment. I suspect there's not one single person here who will go, no, no, God's not judge. But as soon as you say God is judge, what you will do is you will put something in your head that goes, but it's not my fault. But I'm tired. But this happened. But you didn't do this. But. And Calvin is just so right in that. We fabricate excuses for evading God's judgment. And I think this does all comes down to the Lord's table and to that passage about examining ourselves. Because here's this. If you turn the Lord's table into a ritual and forget God, what are you forgetting? You're forgetting he is here. Imagine if you came to my house and we had a, a lovely meal uh, at uh, lunchtime, as always, and uh, our friends from Malaysia and China, and we had a great time together. It was wonderful and great food and so on. But imagine we were all sitting around in the, with a plate of food and all our visitors start speaking about myself and Annabelle as though we weren't there. What would that be like? It would be just really, really, really weird. How many times do we sit at the Lord's table and we fake it and we pretend as though God wasn't there, as though he was absent? But that's the point. It's his table. God says, I'm not dead. I am here. I will show my salvation. And it's interesting what he does. He doesn't say, you go away. He invites us to come to him. He invites those who forget him to come back to that, to come back to him. He does it continually over and over again. And here is the most marvelous promise. If you give up your religious formalism and your hypocrisy, God will not judge you the way that you would judge him and the way that you judge other people. If you give up your religious formalism and your religious hypocrisy, God is so gracious and he invites you to his table. And when the bread and the wine are passed around just now, you can say to him, I am so sorry for all that pretense, for all that faking, for all that hypocrisy. God, please forgive me. And the very things you hold in your hand are the absolute assurance that he already does. Examine yourself. Lord, do we take our obedience for granted? Do we pretend religion? Where are our moral blind spots? It's amazing how quickly we see other people's. But where are ours? And then remember that there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners cleansed beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Because here is the number one problem that you have in the world. You have a deformed view of God and you have a deformed view of others and you have a deformed view of yourself. And the only way that gets straightened is when you look at God and you see God in all his glory and God in all his beauty. And that straightens out the view of yourself and it straightens out the view of others. And that's one of the reasons that the Lord gave us his table, to remind us of who he is and to remind us of who we are and to remind us of the price it costs to save us, how valuable we are, but also how twisted and distorted we are, and to remind us again and again and again and again until he comes. Please don't trust in ritual. Please don't trust 
in reciting God's law. I hope that you will have both. I hope you will have regular ritual of praise and sacrifice and thanksgiving and prayer. And I hope that you will know God's law and love God's law and long for God's law. But the most important thing, the background to all of that is to be repentant. It's to fall before God and to say, Lord, I am so sorry. I've, I've been playing around with the holy things of God. I've been playing games with you the same way that I play games with other people. Have mercy on me, O oh God. He honors me. He prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. May, grant, may God grant that he would show us his salvation. Lord, help us to see this. Help us to understand it and enable us to draw near to you and to, as we take communion, to eat and drink thankfully, knowing that you are the lover of our souls, that you call us because you love us and because you want to restore us. In your name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.